Gospel, Luke's Gospel, chapter 14, verses 1 through 14. I remind you, this is God's holy, inerrant, and infallible Word. It happened that when he went into the house of one of the leaders of the Pharisees on the Sabbath to eat bread, they were watching him closely, and there in front of him was a man suffering from dropsy. And Jesus answered and spoke to the lawyers and Pharisees, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they kept silent, and he took hold of him and healed him and sent him away. And he said to them, Which one of you will have a son or an ox fall into a well and will not immediately pull him out on a Sabbath day? And they could make no reply to this. And he began speaking a parable to the invited guests when he noticed how they had been picking out the places of honor at the table, saying to them, when you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not take the place of honor. For someone more distinguished than you may have been invited by him. And he who invited you both will come and say to you, give your place to this man. And then in disgrace, you proceed to occupy the last place. But when you were invited, go and recline at the last place, so that when the one who has invited you comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you will have honor in the sight of all who are at the table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. And he also went on to say to the one who had invited him, when you give a luncheon or a dinner, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or your rich neighbors. Otherwise, they may also invite you in return, and that will be your repayment. But when you give a reception, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed since they do not have the means to repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous." Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we pray that you would help us to pay close attention to the things that we hear, to the word of God. We pray that you would help us to store it up in our hearts that we might not sin against the Lord. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Dropsy is an interesting subject. Uh, The uh, particular affliction of this man that is in this house, dropsy. Well, it's, 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 it's a term used to describe a generalized, uh, edema, uh, swelling, uh, of, of, of the, the extremities of the body, whether that's arms and hands or legs especially, and feet. And it's usually quite pronounced, it's significant, and it's indicative, normally, of heart failure. Um, and that's, that's an interesting, but very visible, very, very obvious condition uh, that this individual has. And he has been invited on this particular day to a feast in the home of a Pharisee. I don't know whether or not this man is a Pharisee. Uh, I don't know if he's numbered amongst these elite folk or whether or not he is numbered amongst the most significant members of society in that particular location. But one way or the other, he has edema. He has a filling up of bodily fluid in, or of water, frankly, of in, in the extremities of his body. Uh, And it's obvious to all who see him. It's a significant problem. In other words, this man is in pain. This man is in serious pain. 
He has a significant affliction. And it's indicative of the fact that his heart is failing significantly. His body is not able to sift out, is not able to remove uh, this this uh, this liquid. This uh, there, there is a continuing retention of fluid, and uh, this man is is quite sick. He has a drastic condition. Uh, there, in front of Jesus, is a man suffering from dropsy. And right off the bat, we notice intently that he is opposite Jesus. And we might wonder, why is he opposite Jesus? Why is he there? Why is this man placed in front of Jesus at the reclining table? And typically, you have these reclining tables. You would lie on your side. You would partake of the food. You would eat, put it into your mouth. Your feet would be out in front of you or out in back of you. And you would have access to the table. And for whatever reason, somehow, some way, this man is placed in front of him. Is this on purpose? Is this, knowing this is a Sabbath day, is this on purpose meant as a test for the Savior? We know that there have been instances of this already in Luke's Gospel. There are many other instances throughout the Scriptures. Matthew chapter 12, verses 11 and 12. Luke chapter 13, verses 14. And uh, chapter 14, verse 3. John chapter 5, verse 10. 7, verse 23. 9, verse 16. There are many other instances here within the Scriptures, in the, within the Gospels, of moments when Jesus demonstrates his authority over the Sabbath day. Now remember the significance of the Sabbath. Why was it given to Old Testament Israel? It was given to Israel for the singular purpose of, well, one, the dual purpose of one demonstrating that they are in, uh, that they fear the Lord, that they are in obedience uh, to God, who created the world uh, and, and all that is within it and the universe itself in the space of six days and rested on the seventh. And that day was given to a nation of slaves for the purpose of having now, one day every week, to rest. To rest. It was given to them as a gift and a blessing. These slaves were never given a single day off. They worked 365 days per year. They worked at the behest of whoever was their master. And at that point, it was the entire nation of Egypt. They lived, they existed at the behest of Pharaoh. They had been enslaved for 400 years. For 400 years, generation after generation had not known what it was to have a day off in the course of a week. Never mind a full weekend. And God speaks and grants his law and gives them blessing in the midst of that law and says, you shall work six days, but on the seventh you shall rest. It's a law. And what it did was it protected this people from the oppression of even their own masters within their own community. You see, there's no one community nor nation more prevalent to the idea of imposing their will upon other human beings. It's common to every human being. We take advantage of one another. We make certain that our needs are met, even when it means that our neighbor's needs are not met. You see, there are oppressive tendencies in all of us. All of us. And so God would restrain that tendency and would provide for his people a blessing. 
And he gave them one day and seven in which to rest and to worship the living God. And so that was their obligation. That was their duty. It was their blessing. Well, here uh, at this point, there is a problem. And that day, that, that blessing, that day of blessing and of rest, had become so encrusted and encumbered with the concerns of man and with the, the, the extraordinary admeasures that have been added to the idea of the Sabbath worship and Sabbath rest, that it was no longer recognizable. And so Jesus says three things to say to three particular individuals or groups in this passage. Now, we're going to get back to the man with dropsy. Make no mistake. He's got three things in light of this entire story, this entire account in verses 1 through 14, three things to say to three particular individuals or groups. And the first group is the lawyers and the Pharisees who are there. You see, there's a greater connection here with this man who has dropsy. These are religious authorities who have imposed an overwhelming and oppressive system of legal requirements upon the people of God. The Son of Man made and governs the Sabbath day. There are many other instances, we've already accounted for them, uh, within the Gospels in which he himself demonstrates his authority over the Sabbath day and works on the Sabbath day. There's been healings of a woman bent over, a man with here in, with dropsy. Uh, he has healed a man with demon possession. He has healed the lame man by the pool of Siloam. He's demonstrated his ability to forgive sin on the Sabbath. But there's a problem because there is this man in obvious pain who has dropsy, and he's sitting across from Jesus, and it's a Sabbath day, and the religious authorities are watching Jesus like a hawk. Like hawks. Within their law, within the Old Testament law, there are no prohibitions whatsoever of healing on the Sabbath day. None. If you read through Old Testament law, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, you'll find no restrictions on healings. None. uh, As it relates to the Sabbath day. But within the writings of the Jewish uh, Mishnah and the tractate, uh, uh, tractate Yoma 8.6 in particular, it prevents any healings on Sabbath days unless it is a matter of uh, one's own life, whether or not life is in danger. So it was prevented by the religious authorities and their writings and musings upon the law. But the law of God did not prevent that healing. And so would Jesus obey the laws of God or would he obey the laws of mankind? And as Jesus sits and reclines and eats with his people, he is concerned for the state of their souls. What will it best serve their needs as God's people for him to submit to the religious authorities or for him to reaffirm and to reform as to what the word of God says and reform the religious systems into which he has come? It's a striking situation, isn't it? There he is. He's eating. He's been invited to, to, to partake of fellowship and of food. And there is that man. And, and I, I smell setup. I wonder if you do, too, whether or not this was clearly a setup. Because we know Luke tells us they are watching Jesus very carefully. 
They are very much aware of this man's condition. They are very much aware of what Jesus is doing. They are watching Jesus. So picture yourself at a meal, and all eyes at the table are on you. And that's Jesus' situation this morning. There he is. He's eating a meal. And all the eyes of the religious authorities, the lawyers and the Pharisees, are watching him. They're looking for something, some one thing that will trip him up and give them cause in some way to destroy him. Because they have already declared that they want to put him to death. So they're looking for a legal reason for doing so. Now, you and I could never stand up under such scrutiny. If, if, if someone were watching me perpetually, they would find reasons to put me in jail for sure. Vehicular infractions, exceeding the speed limit excessively. Maybe I've said something unkind or, or as a preacher, I've said something that surely contradicts, uh, much of the, uh, much of the, uh, the modern uh, ideas of hate speech. If we proclaim the word of God, if we read the word of God uh, over and over again, we are told that the Bible is hate speech. If you hold to the Bible, if you put the Bible up on your Facebook page, who knows what will happen? Will you be booted off? I have a friend who shared very little in the last few days, and she said she was booted off of Facebook. And the excuse was used that she was scrolling too quickly through her page. I don't think that stands up. All she really shared was some Bible verses in the last couple of weeks. So we live in a world where if someone really wanted to watch us and subject us to real scrutiny, I'm sure a reason could be found to put us in jail. Maybe there's a headlight out on your car. Maybe you didn't pass inspection. Or maybe you're a little late with the inspection. Sometimes I've gone a month, two, three months over and just didn't realize. I didn't do it intentionally. We have been vilified in, in public stores because our children were with us and strangers asked them, I bet you can't wait until Santa's coming. And my children have responded and said, no, we, we don't believe in Santa. <laughs> oh, the mouths that were agape, uh, that you would think that we had bruised our children, wounded them beyond measure by denying them this this fallacy. Surely, if someone wanted to pin pin something on us, they could find it easily enough. And the same could be said for any of us. There's Jesus. But he's no deer stuck in the headlights. He's the eternal son of God. He is the infinite God who knows the minds and hearts of all those who are watching him. He knows the scrutiny that they are subjecting him to. And he interacts perfectly with them. He asks them two questions. One, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? And two, he asks further, which of you would... Having a son or an ox, if they fell into the well, which of you would not pull it out or pull him out on the Sabbath? These are pointed questions intended to get them to see the foolishness of their their own decision making as it relates to uh, their prohibitions surrounding the Sabbath day and healings. 
You could say it's a setup, but you could also say that it's uh, completely and totally a setup by God, a God who would exert his authority uh, through his son. God uh, sitting there reclining at table and eating the eternal son of God, God of gods, light of light, nature of the father, the second person of the Trinity reclining at table and who has the authority over the Sabbath day to do with it as he wills. Contrast his heart attitude as he looks at this man and sees need. And contrast that with the Pharisees who are watching him. The man is there right next to them. They don't look at his need and say, Teacher, Jesus, will you heal this man? He's in obvious pain. No, they don't do that. They're looking and they see that there is a need, but they are intensely focused on him because they want to trip him up. They want indeed to make him stumble in some way. They want to catch him and destroy him. And so you examine these hard attitudes. Jesus, his intention is, I want to correct the the misunderstanding of the significance of the Sabbath day and what it's for. I want to correct their misunderstanding and to free my people from the oppression of man-made rules and obligations. The encumbrance of man-made regulations attached to the gospel. And the other, their hard attitudes, is they say, we want to catch this man. We don't want to hear the word of God. We don't want him to demonstrate his authority over the word and thus edify our souls We want to catch him doing something God-honoring, God-glorifying that we ourselves have no use for. Well, Jesus is looking at this man and he sees need and the Pharisees are looking at Jesus and they see opportunity. Well, there's no words. Jesus simply looks at this man, asks this question, They all keep silent because they don't have any proper answer. If they answer, no, it's not legal, then they are affirming the, the laws of mankind and not of God. Jesus will point that out readily. If they say, yes, it is legal, then they are contradicting their own law. So they they cannot respond. And in the second question, he demonstrates their own inconsistencies. Yes, indeed, you would. You would pull your son out of a hole, and you would pull your oxen out of a a hole. So he has demonstrated it is lawful to heal on the Sabbath day. And so Christ looks at this man, sees his need, and he heals him. He heals him. Because in the Pharisees' understanding of the law, it was not legal to heal a man in great need. Someone created in the image of God, someone in obvious pain. But it was legal within the law to pull out for the advancement of one's own economy. It was legal to pull a sheep out of a hole on the Sabbath day. And sheep do it all the time. I don't know if you know that. Sheep will explore a hole in a field and they will lose themselves in that hole and not be able to get out. They will get stuck in their head by head first and they will be unable to pull themselves from that hole And they will die. And that's why shepherds are so greatly needed. Well, for Jesus, Jesus looks at this man created in the image of God 
And he sees that this man is more valuable than an animal. For the Pharisees, this man is not more valuable than an animal. Do you see the hard attitude? Do you understand the nature of uh, this contrast between Jesus and his heart of compassion, his heart of mercy for this man, and that of the Pharisees who have no mercy, no compassion, who have nothing but an evil intent? Well, the Pharisees had left no room for necessity in the law of God. Uh, they had left no room for necessity in the Mishnah and in their exposition of the law of God. They, they read the word of God and never saw, didn't come to understand nor exercise mercy. There are, they established, there are acceptable exceptions. And yet they were unwilling. They were unwilling to do so for the case of human need. Mercy, though, in Jesus' economy, in Jesus' exercise and ministry, mercy is always lawful, always good. In the Westminster Confession of Faith, in the Shorter Catechism, it says, what is lawful on the Lord's Day? And the answer is that, not literally, but, but it does use this phrase, that acts of necessity and mercy are, are lawful on the Lord's Day. We know that the early church, celebrated, continued to celebrate the Sabbath day initially, but immediately supplanting that day with the day on which the Lord was was raised on the first day of the week, it became the Christian Sabbath, the Christian Lord's Day, the day of worship and of ministry and of of adoration and of 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 rest too. For our weary souls in Christ Jesus. And the Sabbath's intention was to serve man, to give rest, to, for the, 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 the man or woman of God to be happy in the Lord, to rejoice in the Lord, to enable men and women who love the Lord to share in the holiness of God, to make immediate corrections in our mental communication and commitments and priorities to be renewed in our desire for the Lord and to, to re, re, regret, to repent of, to turn away from the ways in which our priorities have gone out of skew over the course of a, seven, a six day week and to be renewed that we belong to the Lord, that our days are to be committed to Him, that we are, our thoughts are to be of Him, to, to renew us in our covenantal obligations to Him to build up our fellowship in the Lord and in the saints, to enable our worship of God. There is so much, so much, so many ways in which service to the Lord serves, or the Sabbath day serves the believer. For then, before and prior to that time, it was work, then rest. But now for the believer it is rest, be renewed in the Lord, and work. Christ is the Lord of the Sabbath. And there's essentially an argument here, not over the particulars of what is permissible. And that's typically what we do as human beings, isn't it? Show me the law of God. Now show me the exceptions to that law and show me where the line is so that I can go right up to it, but not go over it. And that's what we tend to do. No, I, I, I don't want to, uh, I wa- don't want any filthy thing to come into my mind, but I want to go right to the edge. I don't want to misuse the resources God has given to me. I don't want to fail to be a steward. But what can I do and spend for myself and not really go so far as to have nothing for the Lord and prove myself to be 
someone who loves myself more than the Lord. There's no, there's no argument here for the particulars of what is permissible, trying to walk the line to satisfy our own consciences, but rather Jesus is concerned for, the poor, for this man, this person, this being, and Jesus has a concern for you and for me and the establishment of what is right and what is good for us as believers. He has the, inter- the, the, the interpreting ability and the authority to reveal the word of God. He knows the Father's mind. They are one. And so when he asks these individuals, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath day? He is establishing that principle. He is removing from them, taking away from them that authority which they have seized for themselves. He is clarifying that he is the one who knows the mind of God comes down to the majesty and the immensity of our Savior Jesus Christ. Jesus is God with the divine divine right and prerogative of our consciences. J.C. Ryle says this about this passage this morning. Our Lord does not do away with the observance of a weekly day of worship, and he doesn't do it anywhere else in the Gospels. Thousands have rushed to the hasty conclusion that Christians have nothing to do with the fourth commandment and that it is no more binding on us than the Mosaic law about the sacrifices. But there's nothing in the New Testament to justify that conclusion. The plain truth is that our Lord did not abolish the day, the law of a weekly Sabbath. He only freed it from incorrupt interpretations, purified it from man-made additions. But he didn't tear out of the Decalogue the fourth commandment. He only stripped it of the miserable traditions with which the Pharisees had only encrusted the day and by which they had made it not a blessing, but a burden. He left the fourth commandment where he found it, a part of the eternal law of God of which no jot or tittle was ever to pass away. May we never forget this, he says. And he's right. And so now for us as Christians, we have the Lord's Day and we worship the Lord on the Lord's Day and we rest in the Lord on the Lord's Day in anticipation of a new week. We commit the day to works of necessity and of mercy and of worship. And we serve the Lord in godly fear. And we don't take the day for our own enjoyment to the extent that we lose all sense of what the day is about. For the believer, it is a day of delight. It is a day of joy. Today, I get to enter into the house of the Lord. I get to enter into the presence of God's people. I get to rejoice in the Lord our God and hear His Word. And for me, I will be transformed by the Word of God itself. And the Word of God will have its good effect on my soul. We should have a desire for and a concern for what is necessary, a concern for what is the will of God rather than tradition. We are obliged to love the Lord our God and to worship him. The second thing that we see in this passage this morning is Jesus speaks to uh, this, uh, the guests who are invited. He speaks to those who are invited. And there's a dinner party going on. There's a dinner party that's going on, isn't there? There are men and women and boys and girls, and they are there at the table, and probably the boys and girls are in, other, in another place, and the, and the women are also uh, at a different part of the table or another table. 
But there they are, and it's a dinner party, and they're gathered together, and they're partaking of food, and they're drinking, and there are places of honor that various people would sit there. Maybe you've been at such a dinner party like that, and you want to be near or close to the one who is the host, and you want to be near uh, the interesting people, the people who uh, you find very, very interesting, or, or whose conversation you really invite. And you're, you know that you're going to this dinner party, and you know that such and such a person is there. Maybe you're a young man or a young woman who has a particular interest in a young woman or a young man. And you're looking forward to conversation with them, and you can't wait. And so you go and you sit near them, but maybe they didn't necessarily want to sit next to you. Or maybe you wanted to sit near the host, but the host had a certain other designs and they had other people that they really wanted to speak to. Well, may God give us all a, a, a heart that, that flows with a concern for every single person we might invite into our home or with whom we enter into fellowship on the Lord's Day. But maybe you've gone to a party or gone to a place and you were you, you tried to sit in a place of honor or sit close to someone. But they made it very clear that they had other intentions. And Jesus is speaking to that possible phenomenon. In that society, you sat down at the table and you chose a place that you thought was appropriate for you, given your particular honor and or standing in society. And so you would sit at a particular place at the table in some close proximity to those, depending upon your station in life. And Jesus is saying, look, as a matter of social etiquette, don't sit in the higher places as he observes these people doing this. They're, they're kind of jockeying for position and they are finding their places within the, the strata of society as to where they should sit in close proximity to Jesus and or the host. Jesus is the invited guest, uh, an extraordinary invited guest, after having spoken, having preached, having taught. Maybe they want to be near him, or maybe they want to be near the high priest or the host whose house in which they find themselves. But in order to assess one's own personal standing, you had to examine, engage by your own general personal assessment, your own intrinsic value versus another individual. I, I, I have a higher standing than that person right there, so I can sit in front of him. Or he's, he doesn't quite measure up to me. I'm worth one million. He's only worth a couple of hundred thousand. Who knows what measures they used in their assessments of themselves, but... But Jesus is sharing very common, pithy, good counsel and advice. Be careful. Don't sit in the higher positions of placement. Rather, sit in the lower position and be exalted. And so he's speaking about humility. He's speaking about the idea of not making a false assessment of ourselves. In truth, we don't really know ourselves as we are. We tend to overestimate the... The, the, the willingness of others to be around us and how likable we are. Our likable quotient is often way overestimated, I'm sure. I think all of us suffer from this. I, I'm obviously speaking from experience. Well, what's not to like about me? Well, maybe there are things. Maybe I, I do have a difficult personality. There are times when 
conversation with my family, uh, they'll they'll tell me, Dad, you're you're being critical right now. I, I don't think I'm being critical, but they see through me. They can see. Dad, you're being hard right now. Well, I, I didn't realize it. And see, we we, 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 we we are blind oftentimes to our own faults and to the ways that we come off. And maybe we are blind about our own personal qualities. And Jesus is saying to the members of the table, and I think, frankly, to all of us, have this mind which is observed in Christ. Philippians chapter 2 says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. The humility of the Son of God sitting at a table with nothing but wolves seated across from him. Nothing but wolves. They're all watching him, seeking to do him in. And there is a man, one man in need. He takes notice of him, heals him, and mercifully sends him away. He knows that the Pharisees will, in fact, bring their retributive hatred against this man. Didn't they do it time after time? The man whose hand was healed, the man who was blind, didn't they submit him to searching inquiry? In fact, they booted him and his parents out of the synagogue, didn't they? So Jesus mercifully heals him without a word and sends him away. Go while you still can. That's our Savior, and that's what he does for his own. He protects them. He preserves them. He keeps them. He protects us from danger. But the humility of the Son of God to sit at that table, to recline, to partake of the food, and to see and to know the evil intentions of the hearts of every one of those individuals there at that table. The humility of the Son of God is in full display. Would any of us sit down at a table with someone who hated us? Would any of us invite someone into our home to have a meal who we know hates us, dislikes us, really doesn't like us very much, with whom we really have very little in in, in common with. No. But his humility is seen not only in his state of humiliation and submission to the Father's will, but also in the seating arrangements and his presence. Often hosts neglected to offer him the washing of his feet, the simple bowls of washing for his hands. They neglected to give him seats of honor They neglected to seat him appropriately where he could or various amenities that were often offered to travelers. And consider how in the midst of this meal he's being watched like a hawk. I think there's an encouragement here, dear brothers and sisters, this morning for us. An encouragement with an example to cultivate humility in our hearts and in our public engagements and fellowship and obligations toward one another. There is at the very least an encouragement here for us to walk humbly with each other. To not judge one another based upon what we view as as insecurities or 
or, or, or lesser than or, or lesser honor in another human being, especially here in the body of Christ. Well, not to look down on the needs of other individuals, ignoring their needs and simply disliking them because they're not like us. We ought to walk in humility with one another and humbly to consider others and their needs more highly than we do our own. In other words, the ethic that Jesus establishes in his kingdom is forget yourself, neglect yourself, and take a greater interest in the other being in front of you. Have a greater concern for the welfare of the other individuals right in front. But that is in direct contrast to how we are commanded to do things here in our world. Look out for number one. Look out for number one. Take care of yourself because you're worth it. Make sure that you think of yourself first. Get what you need. What we really hear in this current iteration of our society and our culture is you need to learn how to love yourself. The statement of the word of God is you already love yourself far too much. Now, what you really need is to learn how to love your neighbor as yourself. Notice in that in that statement from Christ, what are the what is the greatest commandment? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. And the second greatest is just like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. He doesn't say you shall learn how to love yourself and then learn how to love others because you've fallen in love with yourself. I can't tell you how many songs, popular songs I've heard, and in the midst of those popular songs is this some iteration of you've got to learn how to love yourself. Or here is this person crying out about his condition, and he says in this one song I heard last night, I, f- I forgot how to love myself. No, no you didn't. No. There is a natural condition that every human being already has, self-love. And it's what we need to turn away from. It's, it's not that we should neglect ourselves. Don't wash, don't shower, don't eat your meals, don't dress properly or look decent for others, or spray a little cologne so you don't stink. No, it's not saying that. Rather, what, what the Word of God corrects is a self-love that has proliferated to the extent that we only think about ourselves and we have no interest in God and we have no interest in one another. You see, that's the condition of the natural human heart. And so here is an example of one who is greater than us who says, have compassion, have mercy. Here is a man with edema. Here is a man, maybe he hasn't taken good care of himself. I don't know. Maybe he, 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 his condition is a result of his own practices. He's eaten too much. He's, he's not exercised. We don't know. He's ill. And Jesus sees the immediacy of human need. And he instantaneously has compassion to such an extent that he is willing to undergo the hatred of all those individuals who are watching him at the table. There's an encouragement here for us to cultivate humility in our hearts and in our public engagements and in our fellowship one with another. Think about it subtly. Do we, do we only really gather with our brothers and sisters on the Lord's Day 
and have fellowship and eat a cookie with the people that we share the most in common with? Or are there people here in the congregation, even a congregation of this smaller size, where there are some who who really need fellowship, who really need your intentional friendship and, and, and companionship? It's an encouragement to get humility and to look out for the needs of the lesser being or of those who are suffering, those who are not necessarily intrinsically lesser than ourselves, but rather are simply lonely or alone. Or maybe there are other limitations relating to their social engagements and they need for us to come alongside and ask a question or to simply lighten the load of social obligations. J.C. Ryle has a wonderful word on where we can get humility. And it's very helpful for us. One word describes it. The root of humility is knowledge, right knowledge. The man who really knows himself in his own heart, who knows God in his infinite majesty and holiness, who knows Christ in the price at which he was redeemed, that man will never be a proud man. You see what he says? You will not be so enamored with yourself. You will not be so filled with pride that you ignore the needs of others. If you have a sense of the value of the life that God himself has given to you and the cost of what Christ has won for you, who knows Christ and the price at which he was redeemed, that man will never be a proud man. He will count himself like Jacob, unworthy of the least of all God's mercies. He will say of himself like Job, I am vile. He will cry like Paul, I am the chief of sinners. He will think anything good enough for him. And in the loneliness of mind, he will esteem everyone else better than himself. Ignorance, nothing but sheer ignorance. Ignorance of self and of God and of Christ. That's the real secret behind pride. Ignorance of self, ignorance of God, ignorance of Christ. That's where pride comes from. From that miserable self-ignorance, may we daily pray to be delivered. He is the wise man who knows himself, and he who knows himself will find nothing within him to make him proud. I would add to that, nothing will enable us to more highly esteem Jesus Christ than when we recognize how very much we need him. The man who knows himself will see, will exalt the Lord Jesus Christ. It's very much like the song that we sing, how sweet and awesome is the place with Christ within the doors. The question is asked, Lord, why was I made a guest? Each of us cry with thankful tongue, Lord, why was I a guest? Why was I made to hear your voice and enter while there's room when thousands make a wretched choice and would rather starve than come? Humility understands. And the mind that values Christ more highly than anyone or anything understands the great value of Christ's blood spilled for us that we might have life. It kills pride, doesn't it? The knowledge of Christ kills pride. The knowledge of Christ and of his excellence, of his beauty, of the wonder of his sacrifice, of of his ransoming power of his blood. It kills pride in self and it exalts Christ in our mind and in our hearts. May we learn humility and thus 
be exalted in Christ Jesus. Thirdly and finally, there is a man who has invited, uh, well, well, we'll leave that point for next week. Uh, I encourage you in light of the word of God to, to seek the humility that comes from knowing Christ Jesus. Think, seek that humility that comes from knowing the great price that was paid for our soul, that we might live, that we might live eternally, that our sins might be pardoned, that God himself would be our God, and that we would become children of the living God. May God enable us to walk in humility. Let's pray.